flying field at Moscow, China, starts the greatest news story since the World War. Here, Robert Conway, Great Britain's strong man of the East, soldier, diplomat, and man of destiny, soon to become prime minister of 400 million people, superintends the rescue of British subjects from a city torn by civil war. Fighting back the panic-stricken natives, Conway with three other men and a woman escape in the last plane and fly away into the unknown to disappear from the face of the earth. Into what strange adventure did Great Britain's future prime minister and his four companions fly as their plane continued over an uncharted course with a mysterious pilot at the controls? In Lost Horizon, which answers that question in startling and dramatic fashion, is combined the incomparable genius of Frank Capra with the supreme artistry of Ronald Coleman and a magnificent cast, and the dynamic drama of James Hilton, author of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. What do you mean, when we get back? What makes you think we're ever going to get back? I'll make that Chinese talk if it's the last thing I do. George! George, you idiot! To Shangri-La. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rob, Rob, this wonderful mountain retreat, this place of ideas and beauty and culture, it's magnificent. <laughs> that was a much better Ronald Coleman impression than it was of my H.B. Warner impression. <laughs> I, I, I can't, I'm not going to maintain Chang through the whole show. Don't worry That's about okay. It. I, I have a, I've been listening to Ronald Coleman all my life. I think the first time I heard Ronald Coleman, but I didn't know it was him, was in the Warner Brothers cartoon, Strife with Father, which is one of those Beaky Buzzard cartoons. Wow. And Beaky Buzzard is uh, left on the doorstep of a British Sparrow family. And, oh my, yes, this is quite the bird. And it's only later on that I learned that it was an imitation of Ronald Coleman and his wife, Benita Hume, the actress, who were, you know, not as we're about to find out magnificent movie stars, but Ronald Coleman was everywhere. He had his own radio show. He was on the Jack Benny show. He was magnificent. Yeah, that voice is just amazing. Yeah, we're here to talk about uh, Lost Horizon from 1937. It's directed by Frank Capra, the legendary Frank Capra, and we can talk, uh, we'll talk a, a lot about him later on in the show. Uh, basically, the plot of this is, is, of course, it's based on the book, the famous book by uh, James Hilton, which had only come out a couple of years earlier and was a smash hit. So, uh, after a, an opening credit scene where there is a, a book that that's, we see some pages being turned, and it talks about in these days of wars and rumors of wars, have you ever dreamed of a place where there was per peace and security, where living was not a struggle but a lasting delight? Of course you have. So has every man since time began. Always the same dream. Sometimes he calls it utopia. Sometimes the fountain of youth. Sometimes merely that little chicken farm. One man had such a dream it saw it come true. He was Robert Conway, England's man of the East, soldier, diplomat, public hero. Our story starts in the war-torn Chinese city of Baskell, where Robert Conway has been sent to evacuate 90 white people before they, that's awful, before they are butchered <laughs> in a local revolution. Oh, tempore. Baskell, the night of March 10th, 1935. And basically, so the opening of this plot is courageous British diplomat, which is uh, Robert Conway, played by the aforementioned Ronald Coleman. He's a Far Eastern writer and idealistic dreamer. He's caught in the burning city of Baskell, 1935 war-torn China, during the Japanese invasion. He aids the evacuation of Western refugees from the Chinese Revolution to escape an hysterical mob. The motley group of Europeans who take the last passenger plane out of the flaming airport with the adventurer Conway include... Uh, Robert Conway's impulsive younger brother, George, played by John Howard. A crooked swindler named Har Henry Bernard, played by Th Thomas Mitchell. A prissy, buffoonish, fossil-hunting paleontologist expert, Alexander P. Lovett, played by the great Edward Everett Horton. And a cynical, embittered prostitute, Gloria Stone, played by Isabel Jewell. After escaping from the mob and journeying away from the chaos, the group learns that the plane appears to be hijacked, or shanghaied, flown not by a European, but by a Mongolian pilot armed with a pistol. They're flying in the wrong direction, not east, but towards Shanghai, not towards, not east towards Shanghai civilization, but west towards the mountainous Himalaya, Himalayas in Tibet. When the plane runs out of fuel, it crashes into the deep snow of the mountains, and the pilot is killed. It appears all is lost when a hiking caravan appears, led by a soft-spoken elderly Chinese man named Chang, H.B. Warner. Rescued and provided with warm clothing, they join a strange caravan and are led for many miles, tethered on a rope, 
through the road, right through the rough and treacherous snow-covered terrain. They eventually reach a small pass and suddenly find themselves in heaven of sorts. Through a portal, they come upon a beautiful, warm, snowless, sunny, fertile land called the Valley of the Blue Moon, also known as Shangri-La. And that's the basic setup of Lost Horizon, again, directed by Frank Capra. Uh, I love this movie. I absolutely love this movie. I love the book, and I love this movie. Uh, what do you, Kevin, like, when did you first see it? I absolutely love this movie. I first saw it numerous times on television when I was growing up. I'm sure that what, we, what we're going to talk about, at least partially, is the fact that what we are watching now is the restored 132-minute version. Right. There were multiple cuts and multiple ads. But for the longest time, I imagine those of us who grew up watching it on TV saw, like, the 95-minute version, which is like half the original length of the director's cut, because that would have fit nicely into a two-hour slot, right. 95 minutes plus commercials. So this was on, when I was a kid, a lot. Um, this is my third time on this show. I don't think we've ever really talked about my past. I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to UCLA. And there were m- several independent stations in Los Angeles that showed practically nothing but movies. And I'm sure I saw this a million times as a kid. And it totally captivated me. Not only was the idea that there was this wonderful, warm, tropical space way up in the mountains, way up in the frozen north of the Himalayas, but as we eventually find out, that that place is designed to be um, a sanctuary where all of the great ideas, all the forms of beauty and culture and music and books are going to be held against some on, oncoming Anschluss. <laughs> and that, that provides a, cl- a climate of relaxation. And, and so, even, even as a young kid, I was like, that sounds awesome. Hmm. I can't wait. And then um, later on, and it must have been the late 80s, after watching it on TV so many times, suddenly I'm reading in the papers, there's some sort of restoration, some sort of re-release, and I was going to college, and I'm sure I took some poor unfortunate girl on a date to go <laughs> see the restored version of Lost Horizon. <laughs> yeah, dating pro tip, it doesn't work nearly as well as when you take a girl to go see, let's say, West Side Story. <laughs> so I went to see that, and I did not know that there were such things as lost footage. I did not know there were such things as stuff that had been trimmed. I thought a movie was a movie. If I knew they took a few scenes out for commercials on TV, but I didn't know that things had been cut down this much and that there had been a massive UCLA AFI restoration project to scour the earth to find pretty much all existing prints of this because the original nitrate film negative had deteriorated. It was was worthless. And that a lot of people were putting hard work into finding the best possible audio, the best possible video, and assembling things back to the 132-minute version, which Capra had released. It was the director's cut. Um, and in fact, before we start, start talking about the actual uh, show, the actual movie, let's talk about what's not at the beginning of the film, which is a wonderful bit of Hollywood lore uh, called the two reels that Capra trashed. Right, right. He had taken this out as um, a sneak preview, and it had not gone well at all. He said the first 10, 15 minutes, people were shifting in their seats nervously. They were laughing inappropriately. Some people got out and left. If you read the book, the first 10% of the book is essentially a framing device for the story. It's a bunch of chaps sitting around at the embassy club in London talking about Conway. Do you remember that fellow Conway? Oh my, he was head boy at my school. And yes, he was on the Oxford rowing team and finest amateur pianist I ever met. And, and Gain, Gainsworth, you won't believe this. I met him on a boat. He had amnesia. It was, and he's been missing for a year. And suddenly someone's playing a Chopin etude and it, it all came back back to him. And he told me this amazing story of when he's been for the past year. And that's then beginning with the rescue at Bakul and onto what happens in the valley. Well, Capra had filmed all of that and it didn't work. It was a combination of talking heads sitting around at the London club, uh, the embassy club, and some of this footage probably of an amnesiac Ronald Coleman. And it just didn't work, and Capra went up into his um, retreat, his mountain uh, cabin up in Lake Arrowhead in the mountains of Los Angeles, and wandered around for two days, and he said, I got it. He came back and said, we're just going to cut the first two reels, which means we're going to begin with the rescue at Bakul. We're going to begin with something exciting happening. Um, I, I myself have done a little bit of writing, and every editor I've ever met has said to me, begin as late in the story as you can. Hmm. It was short fiction. 
don't begin with somebody getting up, putting their clothes on, going downstairs, having <laughs> breakfast. Now, that does work in movies sometimes if you want to show the character, if you want to show how ordinary they are, or if they're living in wealth, they have a butler dressing them, or if they're living in poverty, they have a hard time finding food. But basically, cut to something interesting. And DiCaprio himself, later on, when telling this story, often said, my fellow directors, if you've got a film that's not working, here's my one piece of advice – cut the first two reels. <laughs> and that would have actually been uh, 22 minutes, the reels 11 minutes. And some of the footage survived. Some of the footage ended up towards the end of the film where um, they're talking about Conway returning and all that. But, you know, actually George Lucas took some of that advice, I would imagine, because there's footage you can see on YouTube. Um, originally, Luke Skywalker came in a lot earlier and there was right, lots of stuff right. of, yeah, there's him and Biggs at, at Tashi Station and Ku Stark is in the back. But right, right, his other friend. Yeah, it's a very American graffiti kind of thing and yeah, yeah. he lopped all that out. Yeah, this movie does start really where it should, which is the, the, the plane taking off and, and Conway escaping and they really, you get a sense very quickly that Conway is, you know, a really good guy because there's a point where he actually takes the time to save a dog. Oh. There's a dog that's standing on a barrel and he actually, I mean, the, you know, he could just forget, I mean, there's all these people about to try and kind of murder him or at least, you know, maybe not murder him, but like the mob is raging, but he actually stops for a moment and rescues the dog before he does the thing he has to do, which is like, okay, that's, that's our hero. He's the, yep. you know, he's a good guy. There's a book called Save the Cat, which, right, <laughs> which is right, about right. Hollywood screenwriting. It says you can do anything you want. You know, as long as your hero saves the cat towards the beginning of the film, you'll, they'll love him. So what, what about you? You sometimes forget to talk about yourself. When did you first see this? I've never been accused of that before, but uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't know uh, the, the sort of checkered history of this movie until I bought the DVD. And I don't even remember why I bought the DVD because it would have been like a sight unseen thing. But I guess I read the book. And the book, I love the book. I have only read two fiction books more than once. The Razor's Edge, which I've talked about on the show, is my favorite book, and Lost Horizon. Now, oh, wow. Both, yeah, both books feature people that go to sort of Tibetan retreats and disappear from the world. Take that as you will, <laughs> what that means. <laughs> but uh, those, I really love the book, and so I guess that probably inspired me to watch the movie. And the DVD, of course, has a great audio commentary by uh, this UCA, UCLA film preservation guy, Robert Gitt, who has spent like a good chunk of his professional life putting this movie back together, like you just talked about. I mean, finding all the original scenes. I mean, in terms of the context of this movie, uh, Frank Capra was coming off two gigantic hits. He had done It Happened One Night, which won Best Picture, and then he did, he did uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. And so he was, you know, a big deal. And so this Lost Horizon was going to be a giant production. It was at the time, like, the budget was like $1.5 million and ended up ballooning to double that. Uh, I mean, this was a really – this was him just like flexing his muscles. And again, you, we talked about the cuts. Apparently his original cut of this, which was never shown to anybody, but his original cut was like six hours long. <laughs> well, if he filmed the entire book – Right. And it sounds like he filmed at least the entire opening framing sequence. That could have been the case. Right. So then he cut it down to three and a half, and you talk about the, 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 the cut footage, and apparently Capper had said something to the effect of that he took that, that cut footage and burned it. And then I found this great quote from his producer saying, that's impossible because that film was on such volatile stock that it would have caused a massive explosion <laughs> if you had done that. So I oh think my gosh. Frank, Frank probably wasn't speaking literally. But in terms of the movie, so yeah, I, I watched the movie, and I really liked it. I just thought it was... It was an interesting idea. I like that, you know, after this really bravura action sequence, and then they finally get to Shangri-La, the movie really kind of stopped. It's really just sort of a, a think piece at that point, because then all the different characters react differently to being in Shangri-La. Uh, you know, there isn't a lot of action at that point, which I really kind of like. I like that after this really great action sequence, the movie sort of quiets down. And it's really more about, okay, because Conway is interested in what's going on. His brother just wants to leave immediately. Uh, the, the prostitute played by uh, Isabel Jewell, she starts feeling better and looking better. So you start wondering, well, does this place really have, like, restorative powers? Any of that? And then the guy, love it, again, Edward Everett Horton, who, of course, I knew from uh, the Rocky and Bullwinkle mm. show because he's <laughs> the voice of Fractured Fairy Tales. And I, I don't think I even, like, knew that he was an actor 
when I first saw this movie, and I was like, oh, that's the guy from Fractured Fairy, that, 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 that great voice. And Thomas Mitchell is the, the crooked guy, and of course he's like, well, why don't I stay here? I'm, 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 I've escaped the authorities. And this is all, so they all have their different reactions and things. And of course, Ronald Coleman meets a girl, uh, Sandra, played by Jane Wyatt. He falls in love with her. But I've always been fascinated by this notion of a getaway. You know, like to get away from the things of man, to get away from the strife, from all the – and I mean this movie, you know, it talks about an, a coming world war and of course there was because this is 1937 and the war – you know, the second world war is coming. But I mean I really I really liked it and then I, I listened to the audio commentary and I was utterly fascinated. Like that sounds like a life I would enjoy would be like, you know, just piecing together this movie. That sounded utterly fascinating. So I really love that whole notion of it. And so I sort of fell in love with the movie on two levels of just, I think it's a great movie. It's a great adventure story full of interesting characters. And then you've got this whole other thing of, it's like a law, you know, lost horizon. This is like a lost movie because it's all these pieces. And the DVD, in fact, apparently later they found audio of the full movie but not the picture so there were parts of this dvd where there were just still images with the dialogue laid over it because they had still images from the scenes but not the actual footage and that was fascinating so yeah i fell in love with this movie just like literally from the first viewing and i've, I've always liked it i mean also visually it's a beautiful looking movie i mean once we get to shangri-la the architecture uh, it is just a stunning piece of work. Some people complain about the lack of conflict in the movie, but I'm all for movies that are a little more relaxing and a little more. I mean, there's there's there is some dramatic tension, but there's a lot to be said for seeing the beauty and enjoying the characters developing. I mean, some of the best films have almost no conflict. Probably the best animated film of all time, in my, in my opinion, uh, My Neighbor Totoro, has almost no conflict whatsoever. Mm. It's just beautiful Japanese life, these two kids. Um, anybody who enjoys My Dinner with Andre will enjoy, <laughs> right. will enjoy right. Anybody who enjoys some Woody Allen movies with lots of conversation will enjoy the conversations that are going on. I want to jump back um, to something we skipped over very quickly because there are two things in this movie that always struck me. Um, and so earlier in the film, our characters are kidnapped. They're hi- they're, uh, their plane is hijacked. They're taken to Shangri-La. There is an amazing scene where the plane lands in the middle of nowhere, and it is refueled by, I guess, a, a nomad tribe. These nomads swarm onto the plane. They crack open all these things, these uh, canisters of gasoline with their spears and their knives, and they refuel it. Our heroes try to leave, but they shake like knives and guns at them and tell them they can't leave. And the plane takes off again. This Asked, this film um, provides more questions than it answers. So here's Shangri-La up in the Tibetan mountains. How do they get the stuff they need? Shangri-La is filled with pianos, um, works of art, books. And the Lama, the High Lama who runs the place, later says, as I said, this is going to be a sanctuary. All these things are going to be preserved in case the world destroys itself. They can all come back to us. We'll have them here. But how do they get those things. And I've long thought there must be some sort of Shangri-La Incorporated, (laughs) some sort of corporate headquarters in other countries where, in my imagination, somebody in Shangri-La takes a piece of parchment and just writes out piano. And it somehow gets via porters to New York. And Shangri-La Incorporated, um, sustained by all the gold that we find out later is in the valley. Right. Um, then proceeds to go about the business of, of buying all of doing all the organizing. Somebody had to buy 5,000 gallons of gasoline. Somebody had to get it out to the middle of this desert. Somebody had to hire a nomadic tribe and have them arranged to meet at a certain place at a certain time to do all these things. There must be an entire network in the real world so I imagine, doing the biddings of the people in Shangri-La. And they probably don't even know what it is. All they know is they get money and they get a note. I'd like to see this as a TV show. Uh, Shangri-La Incorporated, you could do it as an hour-long drama. You could do it as a half-hour workplace comedy. (laughs) Every episode opens with 
message from headquarters, and they open up a scroll and handwritten on this parchment says, you know, piano, complete works of Dickens. And the episode is about them getting the stuff. And then the series finale after seven years is they're all done. Everybody's putting their feet up. Somebody shows up, message from headquarters, and they unroll it, and it just says Robert Conway. <laughs> It'd be a 1930s period comedy or drama. But there, this film raises so many questions. How do they bring the thing? They have porters. Right. Well, in the, in the book, my, one of my favorite bits in the book is Conway's there and he's relaxing in a luxurious marble bathtub. And he looks down at it and engraved in it is like the name of the maker. It says Akron, Ohio. So somebody lugged a marble bathtub all the way from Akron, Ohio <laughs> up into the mountains of Tibet. Who provides the, the, the logistics for that? Just so many questions. I just, that's, that's one of my favorite scenes because it opened up this insular little monastery universe to something bigger while still keeping it itself preserved and, and, and quaint. Yeah, uh, there, there is a, a certain amount of um, – there's like a, a, a slightly sinister cast to the way H.B. Warner plays Chang because he's, he's very avuncular and he kind of had talks like that. It's very peaceful. <laughs> but at the same time, like, you know, we find out pretty quickly that, uh, that this was not an accident. Uh, that, that, you know, Robert Conway was pit to come – to Shangri-La because we find out that Sandra has been reading his works, so she's familiar with him, and he eventually meets the High Lama, played by Sam Jaffe, and they want Robert Conway to take over because the High Lama is several, supposedly, several hundred years old, but he's ready, he's about to die, and they think Conway is the right guy to take over. So, you know, that's a slightly kind of like, well, that was, you know, because all the other characters are brought there I mean, Conway is brought there by force as well, but he seems okay with it. But the rest of them are just sort of collateral damage. Mm-hmm. And it gives the, just the whole movie a slightly darker tone that, you know, like, well, okay, you know, I didn't ask to be here, you know, and I can't leave. Uh, and, of course, you know, George Conway is John Howard. He's like a real hothead. And he ends up falling in love with a, a girl that, that lives in, the, in, in Shangri-La, played by uh, her name is uh, – the character's name is Margot, and she's played by an actor's name Maria. Oh, she wants vice to... versa. Strike that. Reverse it. Oh, I got it back. What the did I character's say? name is Maria, and she's oh, you're right. I got it back. Actress named Mark. Yeah, I got it back. Yeah. Who is Eddie Albert's wife? Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Okay, yeah. that's, that's a wow. That's a weird one. Uh, but and she talks about that she wants to leave. Like she's desperate to leave. And that again, it's another thing. Where you're like, well, what's going on there? You know, like why is she so? This seems like a really nice place. I mean, it it's it's very much kind of like a commune, and that everybody contributes in their own way. I mean, there are porters, and there are people that do. Work. I mean, I've seen this movie get accused of being sort of like, you know, a little more, well, being kind of racist because all the people that, that work there are of, you know, Asian descent there, and then the people that don't seem to do any work are the white ones. But that isn't really fair because uh, Jane Wyatt is white, and she's a teacher. She's teaching all the kids of all different colors uh, you know, their various lessons. So clearly they divide the work up in different ways. They never really explain how Sandra got there in the movie. Um, she's just there. Take that from it. Like it's, it's, he's got a slightly dark tone. Cause you're like, well, you know, again, I didn't, I didn't come here with my own volition guys. And you, you, you set this up to, to bring me here. There's, there's two things. First is when I was younger, I never gave any thought to who was doing the actual work for the lamasery. Right. <laughs> it's only later on when I watched it, it's like, Oh, everybody up in the lamasery is relaxing. Who's making this wonderfully relaxing life free of struggle that provides long life. It's like, Oh, the people down in the valley who are making the candles and being the blacksmiths. But yeah, everything does seem to be, you're right. Uh, Sandra does indeed teach people are working. It's from each according to his abilities, I guess you might say. Now, the thing that's darkish is that Maria is – how, how, how do I put this? Um, jumping practically to the end. Um, Conway's brother wants him to leave. He's like, this is ridiculous. We need to get out of here. And Conway has been told, but this is a magical place. We'll end up living for hundreds of years and all that. And his brother says to him, no, you're being lied to. Because this is my friend Maria. He's like, oh, Maria, it's like, yes, uh, Zing Chang told me she was here 60 years ago. And she says, no, I'm 20 years old. Look at me. You know, is this the skin of, a, of, a, of an old woman? Is this the face of an old woman? And she says something like, you know, Chang's very jealous. He won't let anyone come near me. And so the, there's an idea that if we're not going to um, suspend our disbelief, if this is all a lie, is she some sort of sex slave or something like that? I, I was really attuned to that. Mm-hmm. Watching this movie, you, we suspend our disbelief. Um, because we're only we only know 
what Conway knows. There's, there are cuts away from Conway of other characters, but we're not given any special information. Right. But George tells him <clears throat> it's all a lie. We have to leave. There is a wonderful – it's 30 seconds long. The camera locks on Coleman, and for 30 seconds, he's thinking about it. Yep. And he's running the numbers. He's like, well, what's more likely that somehow Stumble had been kidnapped by people who aren't entirely – Truthful, uh, and I'm in some sort of weird Eastern cult, <laughs> or I've actually found some sort of magical place where everybody goes for hundreds of years, and there's lots of uh, there's no strife, everything is relaxing, and he's like, "Let's go." We only know what he knows, and what he knows is only what he's told. And because we're an audience, we sort of go with the flow. But no, it's entirely possible that he could be being lied to. There's this other conversation where uh, Conway talks to Chang about like, how do you avoid? What do you do with your criminals? And Chang's like, well, we don't have any. You know, the, everyone here gets exactly what they need, so there's no need for crime. And then he's like, well, what do you do if there's a disagreement? How do you, you know, because they, they, there is no police force, there's no, you know, there's no like judges or really justice system, really. And there, it, there's this kind of creepy bit of dialogue where they talk about what happens if two different men want the same woman. Mm-hmm. And Chang is like, well, uh, you know, the the first man. The second man really has no has no calling on to, to take a, a, the the, white, the woman of another man, and he's like, "Well, what happens if he won't give it up?" And he's like, "Well, if he really wants the woman that bad, the first man should give her up <laughs> and let a man have her." And you're like, "Whoa!" You know, you're like, "Okay, hold on, let's unpack this for a minute, Chang." You're like, what are we talking about? Yeah, there's but, no mention of the woman's <laughs> part in this whatsoever. Which yeah, is, exactly. And perhaps in today's world, I was more attuned to that than some of the other things. Um, the High Lama says they live by moderation. Moderations, like and that, that was the other thing. Was um, Ch- Chang says something like, "We rule with moderate strictness, and the people in the valley obey with moderate ob- obedience." Mm-hmm. That, was, that was again one of the darker things. I didn't catch that at the age of ten. Maybe it had been cut out. To, oh, they do say that they rule, and yet everything does seem to be smoothly operated. It all seems to be well. Integrated, but the, the High Lama also says we have one rule in Shangri-La, and it is be kind. And he talks about how he has had a vision of the near future, where war is increasing, is reaching the point where soon one man will be able to contend against an entire army. He doesn't say that, but eventually one man will be able to destroy an entire city. And this idea of kindness is a tricky one um, for this time period, 1937. One of the scenes that had been cut out, not just for matters of length, but because it was uh, politically inconvenient, you don't want a a pacifist message in the 1930s when we're gearing up for war, is on the way to Shangri-La. Conway admittedly gets a little drunk and says, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to just sink all the navies and disband all the armies, and if some enemy shows up at our border, we just say, come on in, you know? But then he worried, says, I really can't do that. It just wouldn't fly. (laughs) And the idea that in 1936, 1937, you could have pacifist messages, but they couldn't, they wouldn't work. You you might film that scene, you might write that scene, but you have to take that scene out, because America was gearing up for war, however hesitantly, however hesitantly, it was still slightly gearing up for war. So certain pacifist bits would have to be cut out of the film, it's nice to see those restored. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other things that I, I do like about this movie, and I think the reason it, it hooked into me a little, is the notion of that the human body does not need necessarily to die without the interference of some foreign agent. You know what I mean? Like the idea that if you go to live in Shangri-La where there are no chemicals, there are no, you know, there's no like, uh, you know, lead fumes in the air. There's no, uh, you know, cancer causing agents. You, your body can just keep going. And ever since I was a child, I was entranced by that idea because, of course, anytime you've ever heard about anyone in life that passes away, they die of something. You know, they don't just die. Their body doesn't just stop. They die of something, whether it's a heart attack or cancer or whatever. But there's something that ends the life. The idea that if you don't have any of those things, your body just keeps going. That's, that's, a, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a very compelling notion. And there's a similar moment where they have dinner with Chang and where I think it's uh, the Isabel Jules character, uh, Gloria, where she says something about we're – we want to get back to civilization. 
And Chang says, uh, you know, are you so certain that you are away from it? And I like that idea, too, that, you know, well, unless I'm around millions of people and, and quote unquote civilization, you know, I'm, if, unless I'm around the civilization that I'm familiar with, I'm I'm nowhere. And it's like, well, maybe you can look at it a little differently. Maybe this is civilization, too. It's just different than what you're used to. The Lama also says it is the absence of struggle that provides for the long life. And in the book, there are numerous conversations between Conway and the High Lama, and perhaps Capra shot all of those, but edited down to just a couple of shorter ones for the film. Um, the book, Hilton talks about governing your passions. He says, the High Lama talks about the ultimate is to be passionless. And I guess, you know, sort of saying James Hilton invented the concept of cool, you know, the concept of manana, the concept of it's all good. <laughs> I think that the idea that if you're overly concerned with everything, it's going to wear you down and yeah. beat you up, and that will destroy your body. Being in a place where you have you know, less struggle, less stress, and perhaps that's – I don't know enough about yoga – Maybe that's – I don't know how much James Hilton knew about Eastern philosophies or things like that. But perhaps the ideas of mindfulness and relaxation are something we could all take to heart in today's world. Yeah, I mean there's similar themes in, in The Razor's Edge, which is the notion of you don't you, – you give up your notion of desire, which sounds like a kind of a dull life. But, you know, and the, the, I said the idea, like you just talked about, the idea is that, you know, if you, if you want something too much or, or not even necessarily want it, but you are obsessed with some particular thing, that's what wears you down. And I said it's, it's a tricky idea because, like, you know, the, there's a little bit of that kind of mysticism with uh, the Star Wars movies, the idea of the Jedi. You know, I mean, they can't they, – they, they can't – they don't want to experience any emotion too strongly. Otherwise, it takes them over. Well – but, you know, well, that could mean your life could be very pallid then if you don't really care that much about one thing or the other. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, Shangri-La is pretty attractive. You know, it's beautiful to look at, and, and Capra shoots it beautifully. There's a wonderful sequence where the brother, George Conway, enters a hall, and he is shot entirely in silhouette. And it's just this light behind him, and it just – the cameras play down on the ground as Conway walks towards the camera, and it's – and he's, he's flanked by these, you know, beautifully Art Deco statue, uh, marble uh, walls. And it's like, be- like you would just spend a lot of time just, just marveling at the, the beauty of this place. I mean, the, it's really gorgeous. It is fantastic. The one criticism, if you're going to be snarky about things, the one criticism I have is, okay, so let's say that Shangri-La, the Lamasery, construction began, it says it took about 200 years, in the 1700s. Why then is it 1920s Art Deco, streamlined, mm-hmm. streamlined modern? Which, I mean, basically, those of you who have seen um, Xanadu, look at the old <laughs> Pan Pacific Auditorium, and you get an idea. And all of this was built by the, the, the Columbia set makers. None of this was a pre-existing backyard in some movie mogul's house. It wasn't a university or anything. It was all constructed, part of the reason why it took $7 million, on the back lots. And it is so gorgeous. I don't think it's still standing. I'm sure it was all torn down. Yeah. But they really make good use of black and white photography in this. This is 1936, so yeah. Which he wanted to shoot it in color. He originally wanted to shoot it in color, and A, it was going to cost too much, and B, they had a lot of stock footage that they were using of the people doing the, the hiking, and all that stock footage was in black and white. So they couldn't they couldn't match it, but I mean I can't imagine. I'm trying to imagine what this would look like in color. Like oh boy. Oh well, you can do that. 1974's musical version. We're, no, no, no. We're not. <laughs> that, I don't know what you're talking about. That, oh, there, it does there is not no, even exist. There Boss is no film. musical remake of this movie. No, it does not exist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it is it is a beautifully shot movie and you know frank capra is not i don't know i I, i'm not an expert at all on his films i've only seen a handful of his movies i don't think of him as a particularly compelling visual stylist Uh, i I agree compared to somebody like john ford right i mean i mean the movie most the capra film most people have probably seen is it's a wonderful life sure of course which is just very nicely snow filmed it's filmed basically like a tv movie of the week you know, there's long shots, medium shots here, there, and uh, this is the same way, except that the quality of the imagery. I, I'd give him more credit to the cinematographer than to anybody else. But yeah, this is not. He's not dramatic. He's not a stylist. I don't know how much of an auteur he is, but this this stands out as probably his most beautiful film, in my opinion. Yeah, I well, I'm sure he considered himself an auteur because I'm sure I, he I saw I saw a thing, for, uh, a clip of him when he was older, where he said he believes in one man, one film. <laughs> 
I'm like, well, that, that's that's an auteur. That, you know, that's, that's, uh, by the way, the cinematography is by Joseph Walker. We should mention uh, him because it is beautiful. And the music is by Dimitri Tompkin, Tompkin, who, of course, was a legendary figure. And the music in this movie is terrific as well. I love all the tones. There's this great sequence where Conway is talking to Sandra, and there's this odd hum going on in the background. And we find out that they have attached these little uh, little like flute-like things to the to the ends of these pigeons. Or not, they're not pigeons. What were they? What kind of birds there? Doves. 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 And the doves fly around and they create this wonderful little humming sound just as sort of ambient noise, uh, which is probably more uh, sound effect editing than it is Dimitri Tomkin. But I mean, this is, it is, it's, the music is is really beautiful. It's very like sort of dulcet tones when they come in and everything's very relaxing and kind of, you know, you just get that sort of like, oh, I can, it's like, you know, it's it's, it's like a sandals resort. It's like a really (laughs) high-end sandals resort, you know, when you get there. It's all covered. It's already taken It's all good. It's all good. You don't have to tip anybody. You're fine. It's all good. (laughs) How much do those porters make? Well, they established that the valley is rich in gold. Right. And so everything, um, they're they're able to pay for absolutely everything that comes out. Now, what do you, what do you um, think about the other the other? We haven't really talked about the other actors as much. What should, do you think about? I love Edward Everett Horton. I'm a Edward huge Edward, Edward, Edward Horton, Horton fan. Yeah. I love him in Gay Divorcee, where he plays. He's always plays the same sort of um, tweedy sort Topic of repressed yeah. yeah. character. Uh, and this one, oh my god, it's the ultimate romantic comedy cliche. Isn't he like a paleontologist or something? Yeah, he's kind of yep. kind of fossil. Yeah. Yeah, he's got. He he shows one of the other guys that what he found, like his exciting discovery, and he shows it to uh, Thomas Mitchell's character Bernard, and he's you know Bernard's just like you. They flew all across the world to get that because to him it just looks like just a bone, you know. He's like not that excited, and but but Edward Everett Horton's character love it is like oh this is the greatest, and he's mostly the comic relief mm-hmm. in the movie. He has this whole bit where he opens like a little jewelry box and there's a mirror on the inside of the lid, and he sees himself. For the first time, and he kind of does like a double tick, like, Ugh, you know, like his own face. And then, of course, they repeat that gag later on, and he starts liking how he looks, which seems to suggest that everybody's starting to look a little better. They're looking a little younger. I mean, we talk about that um, the, the Isabel Jules character, Gloria, starts looking better. And they, they don't come out and say that she's a prostitute. Because you, I don't think you could have, but they hint at it, and it's clear that she's probably got tuberculosis. She coughs, and she everybody coughs. knows. Yeah. You everybody got a knows. movie. Yeah. Somebody coughs. That's it. In yeah, well, she's dressed up in a lot of makeup in first the beginning of the movie. Then later on, um, uh, Bernard's character says something like, "You you look cleaner. You look purer, healthier." Yeah. She shows and up to dinner without all the eye makeup on. Yeah. And all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Edward Everett Horton's character is not in the book. We should talk right. really briefly. The book is. And the movie are very close, except they've shifted some of the characters. Um, Robert Conway is in both. Um, his brother George is not in the book. It's another minor uh, government functionary. Edward Everett Horton's not in it. The consumptive prostitute is actually a female missionary, and the character of Bernard is, is more or less the same uh, a criminal. I actually like the film adaptation better than the book in terms of those characters. It's a little richer environment for them to play around in, a little richer backgrounds. Yeah, I agree. I think it actually makes more it makes has more dramatic heft that the guy who is luring Conway out is his brother, as opposed to this sort of just unknown random person that Con- you know. You're, in the book, you were like, why would Conway so heavily listen to a guy he doesn't really know? But you make it his make it his brother. That's a bigger deal. You're like, oh, okay, I can see that. Even though I said as played, the brother seems like a real hothead. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, you're right. I think that there are some improvements. I, as much as I love the book, some of the improvements made for the movie, I think, are. are our, our improvements, you know, I think it's, it's a better, it's a tighter little story. Uh, I love said Thomas Mitchell as Bernard is really great. Thomas Mitchell is one of those guys that I think, like, other than to real film obsessives, he's kind of been lost to the mists of time because he was a character actor. But I love looking up an actor on IMDb, and you know they have that thing where it's like known for, and it lists the four posters of the of the movies they're most famous for. So like, here's Thomas Mitchell. These are four of his movies he was in. Gone with the Wind. Where <laughs> he plays the father. It's a Wonderful Life. Where he plays Uncle Billy. High Noon, where he's the mayor. And Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, well, the other character. I mean, yeah. four stone-cold, eternal classic movies. Mm-hmm. And that was four movies out of 107 credits he had. I mean, that that's a hell of a career. And he clearly was in tight with Frank Capper because I said yeah. he did It's a Wonderful Life. Mr. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. His final film is the 1961 Pocket Full of Miracles, which is also Frank Capper's last movie. Yeah, so they yeah, were yeah. really in tight together. And I, I like him as Bernard. I like the idea that, uh, you know, that there is not – because the Lovett character is sort of – you know, you like him a lot. 
And Gloria, even though you know, like she's like a prostitute dying of consumption, she seems like a nice person. But Bernard is a crook. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he in in another era nowadays, he'd be running Bernard University, I guess, <laughs> cheating people, uh, you know, out of their out of their hard earned fortunes. And in fact, we find out that uh, some of the one of the people bilked by Bernard was Lovett. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's like, you know, I lost money because of you, you son of a bitch. You know, kind of thing. So I like that Thomas. I like. That character that gives it some an extra sort of pepper that you know not everybody here is is perfect. Aside from Conway, th- that's my favorite uh, fix um, of Shangri La. How Shangri La changes him. It's like he's like he sticks to his. Um, original things like there's gold down here. I'm going to start mining this gold. I'm going to make a deal with Chang. We're going to mine this gold. And then he sort of gets to know the people and he relaxes and he's like, hey, you know what? I was a plumber and you know what I could do? I could start running some pipes over here. I could irrigate the whole place. It'd be, they wouldn't have to go to the wells and all that. And Conway goes, oh, what about what, what, what about your gold, my man? What about the gold? Ah, there's plenty of time for the gold later on. Right, right. He really gets into the spirit of Shangri La. He is. I get really the most changed. It's just a small little twisty thing, but it's cute. It's great. It's got all these wonderful little moments. Anybody who's afraid to watch this movie because we said there's not a whole lot of conflict and there's not a whole lot of action, there's some wonderful character moments and smooth alterations. It's a good film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, the the idea that, um, like, how it would change your perspective on life once you knew you had unlimited time what that would do, because I mean, everything, everything you or I or anyone else does is based on the time we've got to do it. You know, uh, there's a million other careers I would love to try, but I don't have time. I don't have time to do all those other careers. But the notion that you have unlimited time, or at least very elongated time, like that's very alluring. And it said it's 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 interesting that they all fall into it kind of like. This is actually really pretty good. Again, except for the brother, who mm-hmm. is pretty much a naysayer right from the beginning. And then he said he hooks up with Maria, and they decide they're going to leave. Uh, what did you think about um, Sam Jaffe as the the High Lama? I I find him. There's something about the the way he's shot, and he has this. He's like a little creepy to me. He, I, don't think, I, don't, I don't think he needs to be, but he's a little <laughs> creepy. Well, there is there's an inherent creepiness. To really, really, really old people, and it's also the fact that is are his front teeth missing, or at least blacked out for this? Yeah, he has, that's he's, really yeah. creepy. Yeah, and they put him in age makeup, it's like creepy skin and things like that. What's also creepy is I, I assume he's blind because he's not looking at Conway; right. he's looking sort of off. It's either he's blind or he's in the ethereal realms. He's of such a higher plane. Yeah, he's a weird, creepy dude, and he is shot like in dark, in shadows and things like that. But it's not an evil creepiness. I think it's an unintentional. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No creepiness. It's just that... weird. It's not like nefarious. It's just no. he's just such a really very really strange guy. One of the one of the details I did like uh, again about what what we see in Shangri La. There are dogs. Yeah. Dogs in Shangri La. Because to me, it is not it is not heaven on earth if there are not animals around. You know, there's so I love that they're, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's 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 animals that you would expect. Although I guess you can't expect deers, but the idea that like they took the time to get dogs because they're not just random. You know, dogs are just not not naturally occurring in the Himalayas. So somebody made the effort to not only bring up the giant marble tub from Akron, Ohio. They brought up the dogs too, which <laughs> I I really like. If they need some cats in the movie, then it would be perfect. But uh, <laughs> but I I like all that. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I need um, I need all those. If, to me, I'm like this is there's like a there's a Twilight Zone episode where a guy goes into heaven and he can't get in without it. He can't get in because he has his dog, and he's like, oh, well, it's not heaven if I can't bring my dog. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much there, buddy. So yeah. I, I like all that stuff. So so then eventually said Tom Conway or George Conway decides he wants to to leave, and he talks Robert into going with him, and that ends at sort of like the final sequence of the movie where. Uh, they get out, and we see what happens that, in fact, of course, it really is Shangri-La because we see that um, Maria ages uh, rapidly. Now, could you ever – I have seen this movie so many times. I can't – like, does Maria not understand that she's been there that long? Like, why would she do that to herself? Does she that, not believe it herself that she's old? This – she probably doesn't – but she's a, you know, like everyone else who's young, they think they'll live forever, even once they're outside the magical influence of Shangri-La. She, she thinks, ah, it won't happen to me. Maybe she's thinking this, or she thinks it won't be that bad. But we're talking about what, for me, is probably my number two moment in all of cinema, which is wow. that 
that almost the ending, which was they're out in the they're out in they've left Shangri-La. There's a, there's snow. The the porters have accidentally been destroyed by an avalanche, and they go into a cave. And they've been warned by Chang that once you leave the influence, you'll you'll begin to age. And uh, George is like, oh my god, look at her, look at her, look at her face. And they cut to, and it's an old woman. Maria has become an old woman. And that shot stayed with me <clears throat> from the first time I saw that when I was a kid until now. I mean, like wh- number one is um, Gene Kelly dancing in the rain and singing in the rain. Oh, okay, that's that's, that's, that's <laughs> and a good number one, yeah. two, like the, the cinema experience is that. Moment. Oh my God! Look at her face, and we see it's all true. Because as I was saying, it might not have been true. We've been suspending our disbelief, but this could just as easily have been um, the usual suspects. It, <laughs> right? It could have all been a lie. And even if you were believing, if you were like going along with it, saying, "Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's a magical place, and it's all going to happen," when you see that, and when I saw that, it was probably a god seven or eight year old kid first time. Probably I was like, "Oh my God! It is real." You know, I, I didn't. I understood the concept of film. It's like it, within the story, it's real, and that's the last two paragraphs of the book. Is uh, Conway eventually stumbles down in, in the movie and in the book into uh, a form of civilization in the hospital, and he returns to civilization. But in the book, uh, Gainsworth, I think, who's the British embassy guy, right. is, is investigating, following Conway, who's going back to Shangri-La. The whole point of the book and the movie with the framing devices, he's trying to get back to Shangri-La. He's in the hospital. It's like, oh, yes, and this is where Conway was brought. You know, oh, he was brought here? He goes, yes, uh, uh, Chinese woman. And, of course, in the book, there's no Maria. There is a Chinese girl who leaves with Conway. And uh, the, the fellow at the hospital is talking about her. He's oh, Chinese woman. Oh, um, I've heard about her. She's that young, beautiful Chinese girl with the long black hair. And the, the doctor says, no, no, not young, old. He says, most old person I have ever seen. <laughs> and it's like, oh, my God, it's worth everything for those endings. Those as just probably just the most am- – I love that ending. I just can't get over it. And maybe it's because I was scarred as a young person. But I love that ending, how you see how real it all is. It's an interesting thing to think about that there really isn't anything in Frank Capra's – filmography to this point that would lead you to think he could necessarily pull off these kinds of beats because i mean that's like that's a horror beat that moment Mm -hmm, yeah you know and to to this point he had done kind of very nice i I, I don't mean to to run the films down i mean god one of them is again it's it happened one night it's one of the great movies of all time but i mean these were you know comedies these were social drama slash comedy they're they're just this and this is straight up an action adventure you know and and in some places like you just mentioned like like a horror movie and you know, it's I, you can trying to picture, you know, Columbia Pictures being like, really, this this is the story you want to tell? Like, you know, this was a real kind of chance for Frank Capra to take, you know, Capra, at this point in his career. Capra loved the book, and he later said that the fact that this story didn't conform to the standard story structure, all the cliches that people in, in films people were making at the time, was intriguing to him. It was one of the things he wanted to do. Was he wanted to explore that? He wanted yeah. to break out. And, and and that he did. Now, unfortunately, the movie itself was not particularly successful. It was a, a kind of like a money loser. Now, and over time, uh, as we talked about at the top of the show, uh, Columbia kept hacking away at it to get it down, get it down, get it down. So eventually, I mean, I don't know what the version—a ninety-five minute—I've never seen that version. I can't imagine it would be. I mean, you saw it. Obviously, it worked on you, but it seems yeah. like, boy, that, that would really not be particularly compelling. Although it did win two Oscars, so it wasn't like it was just forgotten. I think people it won uh, for Best Art Direction and Best Editing, which is no big deal. And it was nominated for Best Picture. It was nominated so, for seven Oscars, yeah, yeah. winning Best Picture. So at the time, people understood. But um, I think the shorter version we saw was missing um, some of the – basically, any – Thing they could sort of shorten down. Like I don't think that whole business with Conway and Sandra while going through Sherwood Forest. I think all of that must have been oh, gone. Right. Some of the opening flight scenes must have been gone. Things like that. I'd, I'd actually it'd be an interesting experiment. I'd like to see the ninety-five minute version now and see what exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. It'd be a good comparison. And of course, the the movie and the book helped enter, got into, got into the culture mm. thanks to uh, your favorite president and mine, and uh, Franklin Delano <laughs> Roosevelt, because he first referred to the uh, the raids that uh, Jimmy Doolittle flew his planes from, and they were asked, "Well, where where are these planes coming from?" And he said, "Shangri-La." 
And, you know, again, it's like, God, I love that guy. You know, like, like what a cheeky answer to give. You know, you know, <laughs> he, like, named, he named the presidential retreat, and which then he, now called right. Camp David, Shangri-La. Shangri-La, and eventually reused it. So, you know, thanks to that, Shangri-La became part of the culture. It became a, a shorthand for, you know, this utopia that exists somewhere and, you know, an idealized place. So thank you, FDR. For, for helping that get into the culture, and there were other versions of the, the of the story. There's a uh, a radio version, which was uh, which where Robert Conway is played by the actor Herbert Marshall, who plays Somerset Mom in The Razor's Edge. Wow! So we're back to the back to the Razor's Edge. Um, <laughs> apparently, the the movie the, the movie's architecture was certainly very inspired because I, I found this as a piece of trivia. Some eccentric millionaire in Colorado built a house to the exact specifications of Shangri-La, and it still exists. Apparently, oh, wow. it's still out there. You can go visit it. So i got to try and find if you can see some <laughs> Google, Google Map pictures of that. And another little fun fact is, of course, this movie features Jane Wyatt as, as Sandra. She's directed by Frank Capra here. When she appears in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, the first assistant director in that movie was Frank Capra III. So, you know, she got to got to work with the, the Capras. Now, um, there's a couple other things that are that are worth mentioning, like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That mm-hmm. movie features an opening sequence, of course, where Indy and uh, Short Round and Billy are kidnapped by a guy on the plane. And I have to think that that is partly from oh. this book. From this and book the plane and crashes, too, in Indiana yeah. Jones. Which, wait, well, which brings something I have written down here. Sorry to interrupt. I have a big mark here. It says, what happened to Fenner? Fenner was the original pilot on their plane, on Conway's plane. We see him get knocked out by uh, the Asian guy who hijacks the plane, and that's the last we see. Next time we're in the cockpit, it's just Hmm. the pilot. What happened to Fenner? Was he thrown out of the plane at Bakul? Was he killed and thrown out of the plane while it was flying? What happened to Fenner? I want T-shirts. I want everybody wearing T-shirts. <laughs> it said, what happened to Fenner? No Fenner, no peace or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, so the opening sequence, I mean, I have to – I mean, you know, the idea of your plane being taken from you is not uh, – you know, it's been done a bunch of other times. I'm not sure that Lost Horizons are the first one to do it. But every time I've seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I can't help but think that that opening is, is very much taken from that. And just as a, getting a little bit far afield, but I, I couldn't help but think of it when I was watching Lost Horizon again. Now, of course, like, are you a particular Indiana Jones fan? Yes, I am. Yes. Okay. All right. Are you, where are you on Indiana Jones 5? Like, uh, do you, are, are you dreading it? Are you uh, like, okay? I, I was really disappointed by 4. I don't think I, it raped my childhood, but I was really disappointed by it. Um, I'm going to wait and see. <laughs> you know, I, I will take, I will see everything and it might be good. It won't be, it might be bad. I won't know until I see it. I won't yeah. go see it opening night. And if it gets absolutely horrible reviews, I may not go see it till it hits the second round, the second uh, release theaters down by the university. But I will see it. Okay. Because I, I mean, look, I'm a sucker for Indiana Jones, and I will see whatever Indiana Jones movie they put out, even if the reviews are horrible. I don't care. I know Kingdom of Crystal Skull, yada, yada, yada. I'm still going to go because it's Indiana Jones. Sure. But I was thinking about, like, what kind of story could they tell of Indiana Jones that would be a good swan song for Harrison Ford? Because this is going to have to be his his final Indiana Jones movie. He's going to be, like, 78 when he <laughs> makes this movie. And I'm thinking, okay, do I really want to see super old crotchety indie like they had in Indiana Jones Chronicles where he was basically John Ford bothering kids with his endless stories? <laughs> no, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see old, saggy Indiana Jones. And I thought – wouldn't it be interesting if Indiana Jones found his way to Shangri-La mm. and he could live out his days looking relatively young and fit in Shangri-La? Like that's – I mean, yeah, that's really science fiction-y. But for Pete's sakes, the first movie has avenging ghosts. I mean mm. this – you know, like I actually was kind of OK with that as an idea. Indiana Jones on the road to the Temple of Youth, to the, yeah, the Fountain of Youth. I can see that. You know, yeah. I'm kind of on board with that. I mean, you know, Mr. Spielberg, I'm happy to sell you my idea if you're interested in it. If you don't uh, want that, you can. he can be in charge of Shangri-La Incorporated with his headquarters in New York. Little piece of the parchment coming. This one says hat. <laughs> now, I mean, sort of related to that is I think you could actually do uh, a Lost Horizon sequel. Because there, you you could you could do it in the time of 2017 where Conway is now a really old guy and he's ready to hand off the reins of power to somebody else. Like you could just pick the story right up. There was a book 
which was an, a sequel to Lost Horizon, published. I don't know if it's authorized or not. It's published in the late '80s, early '90s. Really. Yeah, I, didn't I know this. I wow. read it and I was massively disappointed. It was not a hit. It was because it was almost entirely about the Tibet crisis. That that was the angle they chose to okay. take on it. Was about the China China Tibet. Um, I just read it like this is not. Why is this called? It's called. It may have been even called something like Return to Shangri La or something like that. Wow, I'm completely unaware of this. It was a massive disappointment to me. Uh, so I'd love to see, yeah, a real sequel with. Yeah, with the characters, and they're all probably still – it's only been not even 100 years. Yeah, it's been 80 years. It's been 80 years. I mean, by that point, Conway would be – well, he's probably about, what, about 45 in the movie, you would say, roughly, 40. So he'd be 120. He could – you know, that's a little young for handing things off because the, the, the llama, as we see, is like over 200. But, you know, I, I, I just think there's, there's an idea to that, and I think there's something very compelling with the world being a scary place as it is, uh, the notion of – you know, getting away and disappearing somewhere. I think that's a that's a very compelling idea. Uh, now, I mean, again, I don't mean to keep bringing you back to the, the Razor's Edge, but, like, the Razor's Edge sort of approaches this from the other side of, like, that you don't need to be a spiritual person and to be, like, centered. You don't need to absent yourself from civilization. You can go back to civilization and be a sort of, quote-unquote, holy person and be an example to others. It's it's being, being a, a deeply centered, you know, spirit in the world does not mean you withdraw from the world. But Lost Horizon is the exact opposite of that. Lost Horizon is just sort of giving you the, the sort of candy, which is like, you can get away from all this. You don't have to give up anything. Uh, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, if they have a, uh, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the the Tibetan getaway in Doctor Strange, where they have a Wi-Fi password. Like, we still have <laughs> yeah. the internet. You know, like, yeah. you know, like to me, it's like, I, I would need the internet if I'm going to be in <laughs> Shangri-La. I still need to do my podcast for Pete's sakes, you know. Uh, but, I don't know. Like, like, how attractive? As we're sort of wrapping up on the, on the movie, like, is how what? Like, is that an attractive notion to you? The idea of of a Shangri La. I mean, of course, it's fanciful, but I mean, is the, the, does it hold any romance for you? It does. I think after a while, because I'm not nearly as good a person as, as Conway. <laughs> after a while, I might get a little bored. But just the idea of it, it's like being on vacation. It is like a Sandals Resort. It's like ah, oh, there's porters who are going to bring in all the good stuff, and we can just sort of relax here and somebody brings up the food and oh, the air is so clean and warm it's like it would be nice to have some absence of struggle yeah. but as Captain Kirk says in Star Trek 5 we need our pain right. we need some struggle and Conway himself when he's offered the position says you know, I'm, I'm not sure I want to live to be hundreds of years old I'm not sure life even has a point what, what would the point of living hundreds of years be right. and the High Lama says, well, you would be in charge. He says, that's an interesting idea to be – to keep not necessarily being in charge, but overseeing this, making sure that it's maintained, making sure that it remains. And yeah, if, if that's another reason for Shangri-La Incorporated is, okay, once the world's destroyed, people are going to come to Shangri-La to reclaim all of its intellectual heritage. Well, how are they going to find it? How are they going to even know it's there? Right. Yeah, we never get a sense – We, know, we there are some matte paintings where we kind of like, get a glimpse of how big the valley is. And, like, you know, would you get bored? I mean, it's a, it's, it seems like a pretty small area. You might get bored pretty quickly after 100 years of just having this, you know, couple of, I don't know, a couple of dozen square miles around. After a while, you're like, all right, I've seen everything. But you could take up multiple careers. You could start off as go. a blacksmith and then become a candle maker. There you go. And then become a sheep herder. And... Just thinking of all the podcasts I could do, yeah, <laughs> and then become a podcast. Well, unfortunately, my son, the the winds, the atmospheric conditions do not allow for wireless. <laughs> so that's that's the thing. I imagine that there'd be. So there's, if you've, you haven't seen the film, the entrance is it's snowing, and there's like almost like a cave entrance, and you sort of go down in, and then it opens up. Um, again, sort of like the interior of the asteroid in um, Star Trek Two after the Starfleet Corps of Engineers have. Done their work. Hollowed it out, yeah. Yeah, hollowed it out and filled it with a lovely valley. And so I imagine you would have to like run a long cable out to you know, up through the valley, past the Lamasary, through the cave, and then like I just be like a satellite dish. Just sitting right there, right where the snow, right where the border is between the snow and the sun. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I, I need to see the new Star Wars movies. I can't live, I can't miss that. So, I yeah. mean, you know, that's another part. part. So, well, they'd be brought eventually. Somebody would send a piece of parchment and it would say Star Wars V I I I. Somebody would have to get it and put it in a porter's backpack and stuff. You know, many porters lost their lives bringing you this team. <laughs> 
the last thing I want to mention before, before, we, before we wrap up is Frank Capra, because uh, by the time uh, everybody hears this, uh, it'll be a couple of weeks old, but I don't care. I want to mention it. There is a new Netflix documentary series uh, that just dropped called Five Came Back. And it is based on a book by Mark Harris, which I read and found absolutely thrilling. And it is the true life stories about how five movie directors, Frank Capra, John Huston, George Stevens, William Wyler, and I'm blanking on the fifth one. Uh, uh, John Ford. John Ford. I'm sorry. Yes. And John Ford. How they all gave up their Hollywood careers to go serve in the military as basically filmmakers. To, they knew, FDR knew that film could be used as propaganda, and they decided to hire these really uh, skilled filmmakers to make these films. And this documentary is in three parts, and it features uh, other directors, modern directors, sort of paralleling each of their careers. So you've got Paul Greengrass talking about John Ford, Steven Spielberg talking about William Wyler, uh, Guillermo del Toro talking about Frank Capra. That's a combo I didn't. Expect. Yeah, I would have. I, I actually, I've seen it too. I would have put Spielberg with Capra, but that's just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a, it was an interesting uh, combo. Lawrence Kasdan talking about uh, George Stevens, and you've got Francis Ford Coppola talking about John Huston. Uh, I was really excited. I didn't even know they were making a miniseries about this until Netflix like already had it ready and was like, "Oh, hey, March thirty first. I could not wait to watch this thing, and I absolutely loved it. I ate it up. I watched all three episodes in one go, and I am like, I wish if they had made it ten hours longer, I would have watched that. I thought it was so great, and so and it gives a really interesting view of Frank Capra and his career at that point, and you see that you know, in some ways, Lost Horizon was good training for some of the stuff he had to make. When he came over, when he was over there and, and shooting mm-hmm. these films. So, what did you think of, of Five Came Back? Uh, I'd read the book when it came out and absolutely loved it. And, like you, I didn't know anybody was making a, a TV version of yeah. a documentary version until, yeah, practically it dropped. I watched only, I've seen only the first episode, really enjoyed it. It's really beautifully done with yeah. uh, just a little bit of the Ken Burns effect, uh, as we call it. And there's some nice color overlays. Um, anybody who's listening to this podcast is a film fan. And you're possibly also an old film fan, so you're possibly also a World War II enthusiast, if that's the appropriate term. And for World War II buffs, for movie buffs, it is must-seeing. It is yeah. really interesting. Yeah, narrated by Meryl Streep. So, I mean, they brought in the heavy hitters. And you can really see, especially Spielberg, Spielberg looks positively aglow getting to talk about one of his heroes. I mean, he is just so excited to talk about William Wyler. Uh, so it is, it's a great miniseries. And said it, it, there's a bunch of clips of Frank Capra uh, later on in his life talking about the work that he did and talking about his career. It's absolutely fun. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. If, if, you're, if you're listening to this, you're an hour into us talking about a yeah. 1937 movie. <laughs> yeah. Odds are you're going to like Five Came Back. So, uh, again, by the time you hear this, Five Came Back will have been out a couple of weeks. But it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to live on Netflix forever. And, man, Netflix is just like the deliverer of dreams. I mean, this, this is just amazing. <laughs> I love this series so it's really really cool if you want to get some some uh, feedback on um the great uh, frank capra so so kevin man thank you so much for coming on this is fantastic i love this movie and uh you know i kind of joked earlier that there is no other version of this movie uh but there is there is a, a 1970s musical version it's every bit as ridiculous as it might sound but uh so i'm not ruling out maybe we'll come back maybe okay. we'll have you back maybe one will come back five minute podcast and, uh, like webford it's like what about this ad sucked what about this and yeah. like that song but uh, maybe we'll come back to talk about the, the, the musical version because it, it is sort of worth discussing in a, in a car wrecky kind of way. So, we'll give that a <laughs> this shot. has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's just one of my favorite movies and a film that stayed with me in my mind. And we, we talked vaguely about some films of like, I'd really love to do Lost Horizon. Yeah, that's fun. So where can people find you on the internet? You can find me uh, not even at my GeoCities site. It's, it's almost as bad. It's, <laughs> it's, it's LiveJournal. It's KevinLauderdale.LiveJournal.com. And I do have a Facebook page. I'm the white guy in the United States. There's another Kevin Lauderdale who's a black man in England. <laughs> but to look for the... Uh, Look for the guy. Almost all my posts are public. Look for the posts about old-time movies, um, radio shows. You can hear my podcasts on the Chronic Rift Network, where I do um, an old-time radio podcast called Presenting the Transcription Feature, where I 
uh, play uh, radio shows from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s with just a little bit of annotation so that you'll catch some of the cultural references when things come. This comes out, I, I shoot for two a month. Uh, you can subscribe on the Chronic Riff Network. I'm on another podcast, which is about bad movies. We've been sort of derelict in our duties. We haven't done a recent edition of Temple of Bad, which is what it's called. You can go to templeofbad.com. And it's, it's sort of like this show, only we talk about bad movies. And I'm here, I'm there, I'm everywhere. <laughs> not, as, not as ubiquitous as you, but well, yeah. you're amazing. <laughs> we all can't be so lucky. So, uh, yeah, if you want to follow the show, of course, it's on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. There's the, all the episodes of the Film and Water Podcast, plus all the other great shows on the network. And you can follow the show on Twitter, which is at filmandwaterpod. So, Thank you, Kevin. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, that's a wrap. The new United States aircraft carrier, Shangri-La, named for the mythical base from which American flyers bombed Tokyo, is sponsored by Mrs. Doolittle, wife of the man who led the raid. Two years ago, President Roosevelt decorated Major Doolittle, now a major general, for his daring feat. It was from the carrier Hornet that Doolittle and his 79 valiant flyers prepared for their surprise attack. President Roosevelt called the Hornet Shangri-La when asked to reveal the base from which the huge B-25 bombers took off. Now, before a crowd of 100,000 people, Mrs. Doolittle launches the new carrier. And a real 27,000-ton Shangri-La goes to join the great fleets of United Nations warships. Maybe they're never coming. Maybe this is it for me. I'm Ronald Coleman, and this is my Lost Horizon.